Heavenly Father, we're grateful once again for this day of yours where we can cease from our work and gather together as your people to sing your praises and to hear your word and to receive your sacrament and to rest in the great truths which you expose to us in your word. And we pray that this word would go deep in our hearts today, that the King is coming, that you are always on your throne, Lord Jesus Christ, and that as sovereign Lord, we can trust you no matter what. And we just pray that you would now think our thoughts, that my words would be yours, that you would bend each and every one of our wills to your own and set our hearts on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, we've been in this series in Advent focusing on the themes of the Sundays of Advent. And Isaiah 63 and 64 reflecting the theme of hope asking for God to enter into our midst. And we saw that great prayer that God would rend the heavens and for being fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We saw in Isaiah 45 that each and every one of us is a work in progress. In other words, each and every one of us is a piece of work. All right? We're a reconstruction project of the Lord as in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the highway for our God. And each and every one of us, we prepare this way. And oh, that's the message of faith. That we can trust that what he began in us will be faithful to complete. We saw last week as Zach preached on moving toward a new heaven and earth, which was preached all the way back in Isaiah's day, that one day there'll be a new heaven, there'll be a new earth. And oh, did that bring us great joy. And this week is the week of peace, that we're at peace with God and we're at peace with one another as we're going to leave Isaiah and we're going to jump back to the second book of Samuel. In Samuel, we see that great promise that through David, God's kingdom is established. There's two great promises in the Old Testament. Now, there's great covenants as well. There's others. But I would debate that the two greatest promises in the Old Covenant are Abraham and David. To Abraham, your descendants will number as the stars. And to David, your throne will be established forever. All right? And it's throughout these texts in the upcoming weeks, we're going to hear Jesus is born. We're going to hear him called the son of David. I don't know if you caught it, but we prayed that in our psalm today. We sang that in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, to begin with. I don't know if you caught it. O come, thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. That's just great stuff. And we prayed, you know, that, that in Psalm 132, for your servant David's sake, turn not away the presence of your anointed. So it's all throughout the scriptures that David's heir would be Messiah. And we'll see Jesus fulfilling that in Matthew 1.1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Luke 2, born unto you in the city of David, all right, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, all right. So he is Christ the Lord. In other words, he is Christ the King, all right. 
So the gospel writers are telling us that unless you understand David, you will not understand Jesus Christ. We must understand this particular scene that's going on here in 2 Samuel 7 that uh, Iris just read for you. So I encourage you to open, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7 or on your device, open up your Bible app or it's in the back of your bulletin. In other words, open up your Bibles with me. Because what we're going to see here today in this text alone is, number one, how do we relate to God? And two, what difference it makes. All right? How do we relate to God? And what difference it makes? It makes basically all the difference in the world. And we're going to see five reasons why it does make a difference. So, number one, how do we relate to God? 2 Samuel 7. We see in verses 6 and 7 where God says to Nathan to communicate back to David because David is desiring to build God a temple. And in verses 6 and 7, basically God is saying to Nathan to pass along to David, Look, in all the years of the judges while I was in the tabernacle, did I ever ask any of them to build me a temple? Ever? Hmm? Obviously, David was desirous to honor God in this way. That seems like a good thing. You know, if someone came up to me and said, we desire to give you $10 million to build a building, I say, absolutely, go and do all the Lord has laid on your heart. Just like Nathan told David, right? Okay, Nathan thought that was a good idea too. You can understand this. But God has different plans. The first reason, the first way God relates to us, we see in this text Because God is saying to Nathan that I'm a God that dwells among my people. I'm a God that when my people suffer, I suffer. When my people are poor, I am poor. When my people are celebrative, I'm celebrative. It's the incarnation principle that God dwells in the midst of his people. Right? We need to understand that. That's the way God has always operated. Now, I'm sure, you know, now that David is, his kingdom is established, you know, on one sense, practically speaking, the kingdom's not established enough. But more importantly, is God does not want David to build him a temple. God's going to build him a temple. But also, secondly, we also see that God is relating to David based solely upon his grace. Look at verse 8. God says, in essence, I took you from the pasture, David. You were tending sheep. And now you are the prince of my people Israel. You used to follow sheep until I got hold of you. You know? You followed sheep, but now you lead men and women. Why? All because of my sheer grace. All because of what I've done for you, not what you've done for me. You've won all your battles because of my grace. Any power you have is because of my grace. Any success you've had is because of my grace, David. You won't build me a house. I will build you a house. And you see, the reason that this is significant is because in the ancient world, anytime a king and his army took over another land, what would they do? 
they would build a temple in honor of their God as the conquering God over that other people. We see this in archaeological digs. We have this in Egypt, for example. The priests of the god Amun-Ra came after Thumatos III had conquered an area. And these archaeological digs have this inscribed on these stones. Thumatos III, since you have built my dwelling place and you have outstripped all other kings in building my monuments, now I will establish your throne unto days. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And David is about to do the same thing. So God says what the average person here in Cleveland thinks is crazy. All religions are not alike. All religions are not just different ways to worship the same God. God says every other religion works in the principle, you'll build me a house and I'll bless you. You do something for God, then God will bless you. But I'm the God of absolute grace unconditionally offered unto you. I will build you a house and you don't deserve it. (laughs) You don't build me a house. You see, every other religion out there, you achieve blessing conditionally. But with the God of the Bible, divine blessing is received unconditionally. And what God is saying is, I'm not like any other gods. As a matter of fact, Nathan, tell David, I am the only God there is. And I don't want you to slip into the belief that our relationship is based on your performance. It's based on my performance for you. That's how we relate to God, my friends. We don't have to climb up to God. He comes to us and dwells among us. And he does so by his absolute sheer grace. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus being born and laid in a manger means the Davidic king. Triumphant over death. Triumphant over sin. Triumphant over time itself. Fulfilling the incarnational principle. Powerfully and literally. And fulfilling the grace principle. Powerfully and literally. That's what we're going to be celebrating Thursday night. And and all day Friday. And for the next 12 days afterward. So what does this mean practically? That's how we relate to God. Recognizing we don't have to climb to him. He comes to us. And all in his sheer grace. Aren't you glad? Well, what does this practically mean, really, as we go into the week of Christmas coming up? The texts don't say that he's just a savior, you know. My throne shall be established forever. He's our king. He's our Lord and savior. Lord means king, sovereign. If you were to speak to a king, you would say, my liege, which means my allegiance is to you alone. Or my Lord, you're my master. Okay? What do we, difference does it make that Jesus is not merely our savior, but also our king of whom we're going to sing about? Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Do we believe that? What difference does that make? Well, it makes a lot of difference. 
Let's look at these. And they're exceedingly practical. All right. First of all, if Jesus is your king, you're a person of great hope and expectation. Great hope. You see, if Jesus was simply a savior for us individually, you know, that would just mean that, okay, I give my life to Christ, I'm saved, and when I die, I go to heaven and I'm rescued out of this material world. But the ultimate future, as we've been seeing all month, is that God is going to come down and transform this material world and renew it. There is an individual salvation, but there's also a corporate salvation for God's people and the world that we must not miss. It's not just, I'm a sinner, I'm forgiven, I've received Christ, and I go to heaven. It's a corporate salvation where God will renew a fallen and broken world. It will be redeemed, it will be restored. You don't need a bucket list. All right? That's silly. Do everything you can. Travel all you want, but don't make that the focus of your life. Everything we do is for the glory of God and to make much of Jesus. I don't have to see the other side of the world before I die because I will see it in the new heaven. It'll be better than it is now. Okay? In the new earth. Because God's going to do a corporate renewal, community renewal. Therefore, we do mercy ministry. Therefore, we care for the poor and marginalized because it matters to God. Therefore, we mend bodies because he's not just a savior, he's our king. You know, it's important that we understand that because what do kings do? At least good ones. Good kings. They give rest to their people. They bring justice, prosperity, peace. A good king comes back and makes the kingdom a good place to live. And Jesus is our king. And that gives us hope for the future world. Therefore, we're people of great expectations, not merely just to borrow a title of a Charles Dickens novel. All right? We are people of great expectations. Because one of the great things about the prayer at the end that I had Iris read to you is David's just trying to figure out and wrap his mind around this great promise that Nathan's just told him. Basically, he's praying, Lord, I don't think I can live without your help and awareness of all that you've just promised me. <laughs> I, I'm afraid I can't live into this. I can't practice it. I can't live consistently by it and with it. He's really not asking for anything. He's just asking for help from the Lord. Help me to live consistently to these incredible promises. And it's a great promise. And if Jesus is your king, you can expect him to do great things. That doesn't mean you're going to go be an NFL player. All right? Don't import American, you know, uh, prosperity gospel preaching into this. God can do great things in and through your life. So let's pray for that. But what's great to God might not look so great to you. But leading your neighbor to Christ is great. Being a blessing to your neighbor is great. All right? These are great works that God's people are about. And we should pray for it. John Newton wrote a great hymn. This hymn is called, Thou Art Coming to a King. I love Google. You know, I found this hymn this week. Great hymns 
Great hymns of great expectations. Boom, this one came up. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Isn't that great? Julian tried to play the tune for me. It's totally unsingable. So I said, well, Julian, go, go, go write another tune for it. You know, because it's a great theology that we can come with great expectations, my friends, and expect God to move in our lives. Secondly, Jesus as our king means being involved in a life of ministry and service. Ministry at Christ Church and outside of these walls. The incarnation at Christmas means the one who is rich became poor for each and every one of us. He didn't just live in a house up in heaven, but he came down to it and was laid in a manger. I think the late J.I. Packer in Knowing God captured this thought extremely well. He said, we talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental feeling, especially for family at holidays. But the Christmas spirit is not the spirit of Christians. Alas, there are many whose ambition in life seems limited to building up nice middle-class homes, making nice middle-class friends, bringing up their children in nice middle-class ways, and who leave the sub-middle class parts of their community and world to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit, rather, is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of the one who became poor that others might become rich. They spend and they're spent giving time, trouble, money, care, and concern to others, and not just to people like them, in whatever way there seems to be a need. End quote. My friends, Jesus as your king means my life for yours. And it's a life of ministry in Christ church and outside of Christ church. Third, if Jesus is your king, it means Jesus, you can trust in his sovereignty. What do we typically do when life doesn't go the way we think it should go? We wring our hands. We worry. We get anxious. In other words, according to Martin Luther, he understood worry as a form of ruling the world instead of letting God do it. In other words, when you're always worrying, you know exactly how the world needs to go and God's not doing his job and you're going to try to get the world to get there without him. And the only way you could possibly be frozen with anxiety and worry is because you're ruling the world or at least you're trying to. Okay? You know that you're not the ruler of the world, but you know exactly how everything has to go, so you attempt to. And Martin Luther's closest friend, Philip Melanchthon, was a worrywart to the nth degree. And so Luther didn't just say to him, Philip, just don't, stop worrying, Philip, knock it off. He would walk up to Philip and put his arm on his shoulders and say, oh, let Philip cease to rule the world. Isn't that great? You know, Philip... You can't worry and let God be the king. They don't go together. All right? So when you find yourself 
slipping into great anxiety, remember who's king. You're not. He is. Trust his sovereign reign in every area of your life and in our nation and in the world. The church has been here before. We can flourish. Fourth, if Jesus is your king, it means a life of obedience. I hope you had a chance this morning to read from our devotional from Sinclair Ferguson's Love Came Down at Christmas. It speaks to this point that if Jesus is your king, you do what he says because he's your sovereign king unconditionally. Because he's Lord and we're not. But Ferguson writes in this morning's devotion, he writes, When it came to life choices, the Corinthians' view was that they could do whatever they wanted to as long as it was lawful, or there was nothing wrong with it. Perhaps you recognize that tendency in the church. But for Paul, that's a response of an immature Christian, if a Christian at all. It totally misses the point. And it fails to ask the most important question, is this for the glory of the Lord? Earlier, he had suggested ways in which they could tell whether this was true or not. I'll leave the list to you in your own devotional reading later on. But isn't that interesting? There's so many people who try to define the Christian life for how they want to live it. I may or may not read my Bible. I may or may not pray. I may or may not attend the assembly on the Lord's Day. I may or may not serve in ministry. Where'd you get that idea? He's king. Or there's many other people who would say things like, well, I tried Christianity. It just doesn't work for me. What that almost always means is there were some non-negotiable things that I want in my life, and I want happiness, I want health, I want relationships, I want a large bank account, I want this, I want that, and Christianity didn't give it to me, so it doesn't work for me, therefore I'm not going to be a Christian. What that means is, what you're saying is, I will obey God if, fill in the blank. Well, that's not obedience at all. That's using God. And quite frankly, both views of disobedience are using God to their own means. All right? The person who defines what Christian life looks like is using God as well. And both ways are serving something. Both ways are serving someone. You're either on the throne of your life or something else is. And if you're living those two ways, Jesus is not on the throne of your life. My friends, the hardest thing to do is to surrender it all to Jesus. But once we do, once we recognize that he did the impossible for us, he marched right into hell for us. He did the impossible. And all he's asking us to do is deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Yes, that means die to myself. That's, that, that might be difficult. But the reality is we must obey him conditionally, and it's worth it. We will receive our reward. Our lives are not in vain, says Paul. Why? Because he's king. Last, if Jesus Christ is your king. It's a life of great 
joy because I'm either going to enter into his presence or he's going to come back in my lifetime and take me back and renew the heaven and the earth. Either way, we win. The king will return. I don't know if you knew this, but the last of the Lord of the Rings trilogies, The Return of the King, it took in in the box office alone one billion. $140,682,011. That's just the box office. That's not talking about all the Frodo, Sam, and Aragon little action figures that were sold, all the DVDs that were sold, all the paraphernalia. Amazing. But I think the reason that all that money was made, it plays on the fact that we get really drawn as human beings to stories of a king returning and making all things right. Right? And so when this movie came out in what, 2003? I can't remember when it was. It was, it was a while back. You know, you recognize that there's really two ways you can watch that movie. We're all drawn to stories like that. Non-believers and believers alike. But a non-believer will go in there and they'll feel, oh, great, that's a great ending. Isn't that wonderful? They'll feel joy for a while, but then they, they walk out and they say, well, the world is just the way it is. It's messed up. Who's to say what's right or wrong, etc., right? But there's another way to watch that movie. I found an interesting conversation on the web right after that movie because, you know, in the Chronicle of Narnia series, you know who the Jesus figure is. Aslan. Well, in Tolkien, there's Christian metaphor all over it. All over it. But there's not one singular figure. But there was one person who kept writing, and she was a Christian, and she had this thread going, and she said, don't you all see the Christian metaphor here? And almost all the responses are, no, we don't see anything. We just see a wonderful story of the return of the king. And she says, I think the reason I find this so fascinating is because of the deep-seated, frantic hunger that we all have inside of us that these stories are somehow true. It's a yearning, I suspect, she said, many of you share. It's as though I'm watching shadows sometimes, playing their parts against the screen, thrilling me with the story, and yet hurting me because they're only shadows. But once I detected that there was a real person behind all those shadows, a character who is the best of Frodo, Sam, and Aragorn, all distilled into one, and as romantic, as honorable as any, it eased a desperate sorrow that nothing else in this world can. What's that desperate sorrow? That somehow the king will return to rescue his people. And when she realized that Jesus was the true king, as a result, instead of going to that movie and getting a joy for a moment about somehow the world has meaning and there's a point to everything and walking out and losing it, the gospel infused her with joy and hope and peace and love. 
to the very depths of your being. Do you feel that? I mean, it's just a great scene at the end of the return of the king when Aragorn finally takes the throne of the white city. You just take a deep breath and you go, thank you. After all they've been through, all that's wrong is made right. That's just a hint of what Jesus is going to do for you in the new heaven and the new earth, my friends. You have a king. And when you know that deep down into your bones, it's going to grow and it's going to grow and it's grow in a million and a billion years from now, you will all be just a big burning piece of joy and strength. You have a king. He's on his throne. Seated at the right hand of the Father, as we've just said in the Creed. He comes to us. We don't have to climb to him. All his sheer grace. Let's let him reign. Let's pray. What an Advent blessing it is, O Lord. We thank you that you are the coming king. And we thank you, Heavenly Father, for the promise that Jesus is not just simply a savior born in the manger. He is the fulfillment of David's promise. He's the one eternal king that's putting everything right even as we speak. And that changes everything. Give us that hope. Comfort us into trusting in you alone, Lord Jesus Christ. Make us your servants. Humble us into obedience. Stimulate us with great expectations. And infuse us with joy of your coming because Jesus Christ has come and will come. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.